right, welcome. Let's begin with a word of prayer. Father, thankful for your word and thankful that uh, it is not uh, impossible to understand, but that you have given us the normal laws of human language to be able to look at your word and understand it in its context according to its historical, literary, grammatical context, and pray that you help us to understand those things as we review and as we look at a few new ones, and uh, we pray that it would be helpful in our daily Bible reading and study, and also as we come together to worship, to learn from your word, may we um, be um, diligent and um, faithful in, in being able to uh, approve workmen who do not need to be ashamed because we are rightly dividing the word of truth. Pray for help in it, in Jesus' name, amen. All right, in the first two weeks, we saw how the Bible was composed from the mind of man uh, to the mind, uh, excuse me, from the mind of God to the mind of man. That God uses the process, uh, which is called inspiration, in order to take his thoughts and get them onto the pages of Scripture. Um, he uses the process of inspiration, which is that the Spirit um, causes the authors to be able to write down exactly what God wants to have written down. We saw that God does not lie and that he wrote his word, and because God does not lie, we can be confident that the Bible is the true word of God and that it, it, it is what we need for life and godliness. So we have God's word in front of us. So the, the next step is to ask the question, how do we understand it? And that's what we've been working on um, starting last week and we'll work on for this week and the next two weeks as well. How do we understand the Bible? And the answer to that very shortly is that we need to properly interpret the Bible. And um, so last week we saw that that we understand God's Word through this process of interpretation, which is the process by which we try to understand to the best of our ability the author's intended meaning. And the reason for that is because um, people often misunderstand other people and we can often misunderstand the Scriptures because we force our ideas onto what we think it means. Instead, we need if we're going to understand uh, a love letter like we talked about last week, or if we're going to stand, understand the Bible, we need to make sure we understand it according to the context. We not, might not have the person right there, so we can just ask them all the questions like with the love letter, but we can look at the context. Every sentence is ha, has a larger context, right? We'll talk about that a little bit more today. So if we understand things in light of its context, then that actually um, helps us to understand what the author's meaning is. We hate it when people misunderstand us or misinterpret our words, and so we should be careful to understand the words of God. And just um, to illustrate this idea of, of multiple interpretations, have you ever noticed how many different interpretations there are of the Constitution of the United States. Right? You have people that are all over the spectrum when it comes to understanding what did the original authors intend. And how do they... Those who... <laughs> the reason there are so many... Let's, let's start there. The reason there are so many different interpretations is because people are playing by different rules. Right? That, that some people are looking at the Constitution and they want to take their agenda and force it on what the Constitution says. Other people actually want to understand it 
for what it is. So they, they look at the document itself. They read it in its context. They, they consider the historical time period in which it was written. Does that sound familiar to what we're doing with the Scriptures? Okay, they look at it grammatically and the, the literary nature of it. We're going to talk about that today. All right. So I would suggest to you that the reason that there are so many different interpretations is not that God is unclear, right, or that God is self-contradictory in His Word. It's not that at all. It's because we play by different rules. Some people want to take their agenda and force it onto the Scriptures. They have their idea of what they want it to mean, and so then they, they, um, then they use the Scriptures to accomplish their purposes, rather than um, the other way around. Rather than what's called eisegesis, forcing our ideas onto the Scriptures, we, we try to do exegesis, which is we take the Scriptures' meaning, try to understand it for what it is, and then apply it to our lives based on that. Last time we spent most of our time looking at the first type of context when it comes to language, which is historical context. Every book of the Bible was written at a particular time, in a particular place, in a given culture, with a specific purpose. So that's the first truth there that you see on the front of your handout. Uh, with your, all communication has a historical context. Okay, every, every single document was written at a particular time, place, culture, and it has a specific purpose. And so if we want to understand God's message, then we need to do some work and find out when was it written. And again, we have this huge span, even from the beginning of the writings, Moses or Job, all the way to the end, the Apostle John. We have this huge span of time that's taken place. And so, um, like I mentioned last week, just think about how much has changed in our country in the last 240 years and consider how much things have changed between the time of Moses and the time of the Apostle John. So you have a large time gap that's going on, and we are also 2,000 years removed from the last time, the last writing, right? So there's a huge time gap there, as well as a cultural gap, right? That we don't live in the ancient Near East. We don't live in the Near East, or or the Middle East, not today. So we are 5,000 miles away from where all these events happened. We don't understand all the terrain, unless perhaps you've been to the Holy Land or something. Um... And so, so we need to, to do some, some work. And there are lots of great tools to help us in that. Um, some of them you can find right in the text. Others just, there's some good Bible study tools that you can use. Just a, 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 good, Bible, uh, a good study Bible would just be uh, helpful in that way. And there are lots of good study Bibles that you can use. Um, we also talked about the purpose, that if there's a historical context, then also this author wanted to write it for a specific purpose. So let's see if we can find out what the purpose is. We looked at John 20:31. These things are written that you might believe that Jesus is the Son of God. So why, John, did you write this gospel? And it, he seems to answer that in that specific verse, that, that people would know that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, that he is the Messiah. So sometimes it's stated like there in John. Other times it's not stated, and so we'll have to do a little bit of extra work. Who is the author? Who are the recipients? Uh, What was the occasion of the writing? So think about 1 Corinthians. You know, the author is Paul, and the recipients are, and what was the occasion? Like, why did he write this letter? Right, he was trying to respond to specific problems that were going on within the church that he had heard about from Chloe's household and also that that they had written to him about. So um, don't be afraid or don't be too frightened if you don't 
you know, you don't see the the purpose of every single book as you're reading through. Like, I can't understand the meaning now. Um, we're going to get to that in time. But um, that's also why we work together through these things in, in a church service. You know, we, we try to work through books and help you to see the bigger picture uh, so that when you're reading them um, on your own, then, then you can uh, have some help there in interpreting it properly. So let's uh, let's turn to Philippians 4:13 because I just want to highlight another example that is often used in our culture and Christian subcultures, um, where a verse is misrepresented, mis misinterpreted. Philippians 4:13. See if you agree with me on this. That is, that it's misrepresent, mis, it's misinterpreted. Most of us know this by heart, but I can do all things through him who strengthens me. So how have you heard people use this verse out of context? Yeah, they, they say, I can do all things. They skip the Christ part and just, I can do all things. So what does it mean for them? Like, what, what, how would they apply that in their situation? Okay, personal motivation, anything they want. Do you, do you know of any specifics of someone doing that? Sports, right? See the eye black they put there, Philippians 4.13? Okay, um, what are they saying? I mean, uh, the, the, most, um, the, the two most common examples I, I have seen in sports is uh, Tim Tebow, who is now trying to play for the Mets baseball, and then also uh, Russell Wilson, who plays for the Seattle Seahawks. He's the quarterback there. And he uses this verse all the time. I can do all things. So this is like his verse that helps him. Si- and and uh, maybe I need to, to just do a little bit more research on him. But it seems to me that he's using it to say that I can I can win games, you know, because I'm doing all things through Christ. And so when I don't win games, it's because I'm not doing all things through Christ. But is that what Paul was talking about when he said, I can do all things through Christ? Was he saying, you know, I have the ability to fly if I wanted to without the help of machinery? Is that what he was saying? I mean, I think that's how we can tend to use it, that we will have physical success or I can hit a home run or get a touchdown because I can do all things. And the emphasis tends to be on the I and the do. Um, instead of uh, considering this in its context. So let's just... Here's, here's one of the most helpful ways to, to just understand verses because, again, we have our silver bullet verses that work for our arguments and we fail to look at the verses around it. So here's something very simple. So I just want to kind of help you uh, see this as, as an example. Look at verse 12. Uh, verse 11. Not that I speak from want, for I have learned to be content in whatever circumstances I am. I know how to get along with humble means, And I also know how to live in prosperity. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of being filled and going hungry, both of having abundance and suffering need. Okay, so notice what he says there in verse 12. I know how to have humble means. I know the secret of, and he goes on to say, going hungry. He knows the secret of that. What is the secret? That he has to be content, right? That's what verses 11 says. In the beginning of 12, say he knows how to do that because he has learned how to be content no matter what the circumstances. So even when he doesn't hit the home run, even when he doesn't, you know, 
He doesn't get what he wants. In fact, he's actually suffering need. Isn't that what the end of verse 12 says? So both in prosperity and in abject poverty, he knows the secret of getting along. And then he says, verse 13, I can do all things. What do you think he means there? He can survive with them on the basis of what? What's that? In contentment in Christ. Right? That This is no guarantee that Paul is going to have health and wealth. This is no guarantee that Paul's going to just make a wish and get it. Jonathan? Yeah. I could do all things in him who strengthens me. Yeah, so this doesn't apply to unbelievers, in other words, right? So an unbeliever can't be content in his circumstances, ultimately, because he hasn't found his contentment in Christ. So so there's an example of how, how misinterpreted... I brought up another one on Wednesday, you know, Matthew 7, do not judge lest you be judged. And it's in the context of Jesus saying... When you go to judge your brother by taking the, you know, calling them to get the sliver out of their eye, make sure first you take the beam out of your eye. So, so context is key. We have to understand things in their context. So, um, let's try to do our best. And then there's application that can come from that, absolutely. Um, but, but as this first principle goes, a text can never mean what it never meant. All right, let's try to let's do another one. Let's go to John chapter three, verse sixteen. Gospel of John. Thank you. John three sixteen. And again, this one this one's not as misinterpreted as some of these others, but it's good for us to just see this in the context, and perhaps it sheds a little bit more light on on it than um, than we often give credit. Uh, three sixteen says. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. Now, if every text is understood properly, the author's meaning is understood properly in its context, and let's look at the smallest, the sh- smallest context. So let's think about it this way. Okay. Do word, phrase. Okay, so help me here. So, word. To, to understand a word, we need to understand it within its phrase. We want to understand a phrase. We want to understand what's in the sentence. What would be the next level? Paragraph. Paragraph. And then what? Okay, chapter, now remember these are not inspired. Chapters are not inspired. Those came along in the 1500s, so that was just to help us to find our place. But uh, but they're actually fairly good for the most part. You notice when we go through narratives in the Old Testament, like this morning, we're going through number 6, and it seems to be a contained unit, or tonight, 1 Samuel 20. seems to be one story, one, one unit. So th- those are pretty good ways, and if you think about this, like outside of the Bible, just a regular book, this would be, this would be appropriate, right? Within a chapter, 
uh, you, you understand a paragraph within its larger unit, its chapter, then what? Okay, then let's think about the Bible. There's 66 of these, so then what would be the largest context? Okay, yeah, actually, yeah, you could break it down that way. Good. Those seem to be a contained unit, and then the Bible. Okay, so let's try this with, um, we're already here. Okay, we're kind of already here with John 3.16. So let's think about the larger unit. Where does John 3.16 fall? Very good. Okay, how about a paragraph? Do you see paragraph markings in your Bible? Sometimes they're high, the, the first verse is um, bold. Other, other times um, you'll have an indentation, but that'll help you see where the paragraph markings are. Okay, see a break at nine. Where's the next break? Okay, so my Bible uh, seems to be, and a lot of these paragraph markings come from the Greek. Um, the the Greek actually has they they section off the the text based on paragraphs. So from 16 to 21 would be the larger larger unit. So what's going on in 16 to 21? particularly verses 17 through 19. What's the message there? Okay. God did not send the the Son into the world in order to judge the world, verse 17. He who believes in Him is not judged. Right? He who does not believe has already been judged. And what Jesus is doing is bringing men... Um, he's he's bringing judgment on those who love darkness. So, God has acted, and and the way that God has acted to bring salvation instead of judgment is by sending His Son, which helps us to see what's going on in, in verse 16. Now, let's think about the chapter. In which chapter does this fall? Three. Bonus points for Paul. Good job. All right. So what's going on in chapter 3? You can look at your heading if you want to. You must be born again. So what's going on? Salvation. What's the story, I should say? Nicodemus, right? Jesus is talking to Nicodemus. Nicodemus comes at night. He wants to know, you know, um, what's the question there? Um, how can a man be born when he's old? Verse 4. Right, he he comes uh, at night, probably wanting to avoid being seen. And in verse two, he says, "Rabbi, we know that you've come from God as a teacher. No one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him." And Jesus says, "If you want to enter the kingdom, you need to be born again." And then Nicodemus says, "Well, how can a man be born when he's old?" And Jesus goes on to tell him that the Spirit moves however He wishes, and He causes things to happen. And then Nicodemus says in verse 9, how can these things be? And Jesus says, you should have known. You should have seen this. That You see, what God is doing is he's bringing redemption to mankind, and I am that redemption. I am the salvation of Israel and of the Gentiles. So that, verse 36, 
Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life, but whoever does not obey the Son will not see life but the wrath of God. So again, this whole chapter is about Jesus explaining salvation to Nicodemus. And John goes on to give some commentary after the fact in verse 22 and following, but the point is is that, that this is about salvation. So, how about the book? Paul, can you help us? John, good. Okay. Seems simplistic, but, but really, um, when we get into the process of studying the Scriptures and trying to, to extract the meaning of the text, it actually is very simple. Um, sometimes we overcomplicate it, overcomplicate it with all of our study tools and huge concordances, and sometimes those can be helpful, but but sometimes it's just as easy as this, asking questions. So let's ask the question, what is going on in the book of John? Okay. Let's think back to last week or even earlier this morning. What was the purpose of the book of John, of the letter or the, the gospel of John? What was the purpose? Okay, John twenty thirty one. Remember, was our purpose statement? These are written that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. So how does how does chapter 3 fit into this whole purpose of what John is doing? How does talking to Nicodemus about salvation have anything to do with this? Does it have anything to do with it? Okay, so here's how you can have a relationship with this one who is the Son of God. You can believe. And then, you know, if we we take it all the way back down to 3.16, whoever believes in Him will not perish but have everlasting life. That Jesus is the Savior. That's the whole purpose of of, uh, John's writing. He's trying to show that Jesus is the Savior, the Son of God. Alright? So let's take it out in the larger context. Um, the purpose of the New Testament and the Bible. What is the purpose of the Bible? Okay, so it has something to do with God. Uh, one of the one of the kind of nerdy. Um, Activities that I like to do is do like word searches in the Bible. I've got a program that helps me do that, so I can look up which words were used the most in the Bible. And I don't have the numbers for you right here. I'm not that nerdy to remember them, but um, but I did look them up. And the word that is used the most is God or Lord or Jesus. If you add all those together, it's the by far the the word that's used the most. So it's a message about God. Very simply, you could say it's a message about God. But what is it about God? Okay, so it's about who God is, who we are, and how we can come into relationship with Him. How God is glorified, in how God glorifies Himself through us coming into a relationship with Him. So something to do with that. And and when you think about it in those terms, this Gospel of John fits right into that. And this John three sixteen is is almost like a crescendo of the entire Bible. That that the Bible has been working to this point say that God wants to meet with His people. And here he's, he's come to His people in the person of Jesus Christ. And you who believe in the Son can have a relationship with God. 
and you will have everlasting life. Alright, so really, this is kind of a simplistic exercise, but this will help you in just trying to understand any part of the Bible. Pick, pick a verse in the Bible you're trying to understand and, and see if you can understand it in terms of this larger narrative. What is God trying to say in the overall picture? Because, as we'll see today, every, every word, every phrase, every sentence uh, has meaning within its larger context. All right, any questions on that? All right, today we want to look at a few more principles of interpretation. That was more historical context. Now we want to look at literary and grammatical context. All right, so in addition to the historical setting, interpretation is influenced by literary factors. So different literary types are going to be interpreted differently. For example, an apple a day keeps the doctor away is a kind of proverb. Now, it's not in the Bible, but it's a kind of proverb. It's a type of literary device that's used to explain some truth. And, and a, problem, a, a proverb is not a blanket guarantee, but it's a general truth. So when you come to the proverbs, you need to recognize that, that they, these are general truths. These aren't always the case, right? For example... Um, the only, thing, the only one I can think of is train up a child in the way he should go and when he is old he will not depart from it. Has there, been anybody, has there ever been a Christian parent who's trained up their child in the proper way? Let's say they had ten children and nine of them followed the ways of the Lord and the other one turned away from the Lord. Okay, so there we have a general truth. In general, when you train up your child in the proper way, then when he is old, he will not depart from it. But there are some who actually do depart from the truth. Right? Um, seems like we have lots of examples in the Old Testament. And although it's not uh, an exact correlation, um, even Jesus had one who turned away from him. Right? It wasn't his child, but, but he, he taught Judas the same thing he taught all the other guys, and yet Judas still turned away from him. So when we come to Proverbs, we'll get to that more what we're trying to do here is just give you an overview of literary devices that are used in the Bible. Recognize that there are different um, genres in which you're going to read within the scriptures. Then, when we get into the actual uh, interpretation, uh, the expansion of it, more in like um, observation and dissection, then we'll, we'll uh, talk about these specifically. But for now, can you think of any other forms of literary devices that are used? So here's your first blank. Interpret every biblical text in light of its literary form. Interpret every biblical text in light of its literary form. So can you think of any other literary types that are used, literary forms that are used besides Proverbs? Poetry. So what kind of books would fall under poetry? Okay, Psalms. Okay, and um, I think... Song of Solomon's not really, it's more, um, Song of Solomon probably could fit in their poetry. What else? Ecclesiastes probably, uh, yeah, poetry. There's definitely poetry in there, so. What else besides poetry? Yeah, what's this? John. Narrative, or um, the Old Testament historical books. You know, yeah, well, even the, the Pentateuch, 
from Genesis to to uh, Deuteronomy, all narrative. Then you got the historical books: Joshua, Judges, Ruth, First, Second Samuel, First, Second Kings, First, Second Chronicles, uh, Ezra, Nehemiah, Esther. Um, what else? Yeah, inside even yeah inside the narratives you have like parables, right? This is a literary device that Jesus uses in order to make a point. And those aren't just used by Jesus, by the way. The Old Testament prophets use them as well. But you have uh, parables. You have, um, yeah, instruction. Or what about um, what about Paul's writings? Okay, we could just call them. The big word is epistolary, but we could just use letter. Okay, so they're letters. They're just a letter from one person to another to another person or a group of people. Uh, obviously, a prophecy, um, and so on. So we'll we'll get into all those. But keep in mind that when you come to a specific text of scripture, it's going to be it's going to depend on which kind of literary form that you have to determine how you're going to interpret it, right? We don't interpret poetry or proverbs in the same way that we interpret parables and letters. Letters are more teaching. They're more uh, didactic, meaning they're looking for um, for us to learn a truth and then to apply a truth. So we need to keep that in mind when we're, we're looking at various parts of Scripture. So one of the simple ways you can do that is just through your normal Bible reading, try to just answer the question, what kind of literary form, what genre is this part of scripture that I'm reading right now. And that will help you to, to help understand it. And again, we're gonna um, we're gonna get into that in more detail in a few classes. Second, interpret every biblical text in light of its literary device. So literary, literary. Literary form, literary device. Literary device. So this means that within the various kinds of forms that you have, the the various genres we have different kinds of literary devices that are used. Um, and so we believe that we need to understand the, the Bible literally, but even in a literal interpretation, we can use figures of speech, right? So, for example, a person might say, my mouth is on fire, if he's just tasted something very hot. Okay, or in John 10... Verse 7, Jesus said, I am the gate. See, Jesus is using a literary device to make his point. Just as our mouth is not actually in flames, Jesus is not actually a gate that swings. Right? So we still have a literal interpretation, or we could say a normal interpretation, but normal interpretation also allows for different literary devices, like sarcasm as we're seeing with Paul. You know, you you are, are in First Corinthians, you are so rich and you are so great and, and you are so powerful. You are already kings, aren't you? Right? That's sarcasm that he's using there. He's saying that, that you're far from that, but but you think you are. Um, so we need to keep that in mind when we're looking at the various texts of Scripture. So, so the first principle in interpreting Scripture is that the text can never mean what it never meant. And the second principle is all texts are not alike. All texts are not alike. So we can't interpret them all in the same way. 
All right, any questions on literary context? Again, we're going to get into this in more detail and show you more examples of how to understand these things as we come to prophets, um, prophecy and, and um, parables and so on. But do you have any questions on literary context, literary devices? Okay, so number one, all communication has a historical context. Number two, all communication has a literary context. All right, principle number three. A given text has only one meaning. Okay? Again, this is like our misinterpretation problem with the Constitution. There's only one actual meaning of what the authors intended. There's only one meaning. There's only one meaning of my love letter, right, that we talked about last week. There's only one meaning. The person who wrote that knows what that meaning is. And there's only one meaning of the Scriptures. So this is important for us to understand and critical to the, the process of, of interpretation. So this has to do with the grammatical context. Oh, I skipped a couple of spots. I wonder why that didn't make sense. I had it out of order in here. Okay, so let's get to those blanks here in just a second. The difference between the other barrier we had, I already talked about, written several thousand years ago and it's also written several thousand miles away from us but the other barrier is language you know we we the, the the bible was not written in english it was written in hebrew and greek and then parts of it were aramaic but the these obstacles can be overcome by applying this the following rule of interpretation that is that we must interpret every biblical text here's your blank Interpret every biblical text in light of its original language. Interpret every biblical text in light of its original language. So, again, since it's written in Hebrew and Greek, and most of us don't know these languages, it's necessary to obtain a good translation that helps to convert this old, archaic, really, the Greek is not used at all by anyone, the Koine Greek anymore. So, um, besides Bible scholars, but I mean, nobody speaks Koine Greek. Um, so we need to have a good translation that helps us that's in our language. And that's why the the Reformers worked so hard, and, and even people before that, to actually get a good translation of the Bible into, um, into our language. And that's why there are p thousands of people right now that are working in all over the world trying to get the Bible into various languages. So, one factor to bear in mind when interpreting the language of Scripture is that all languages are univocal. That is, they have one voice. A word can only mean one thing in a given context. It can't have multiple meanings. Now, there is kind of an exception that we have when we use puns, right? When we, we make a pun, we're, we're actually giving a double meaning or a double entendre. Um, so, how are we going to understand what the author meant when he used that word? Any ideas? This is the, the foundational principle that we had at the very beginning. Context. We need to understand the context. So, so when Paul says, you all are rich, you all are kings, what is he saying? Is he saying something about their physical well-being? That you're sitting in palaces with lots of money? Is he saying something about their spiritual well-being, that they're so great spiritually? He's actually not saying that. 
And we know that because of the context. He's ripping into them, right? In a, um, being a little bit um, straightforward with them so that they get the point. Like, we, we have so little. We have done nothing. We, 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 um, we don't look like anything in comparison to the, to the philosophers and the, the great Corinthians around you. The, that is, people in your city. So we have to understand it in terms of its context. So, first, interpret every biblical text in light of its original language. And then second, interpret every biblical text in light of its larger, larger logical unit. So here we go. How do we understand what's going on? You can't just, um, you know, John 3.16 may be an exception. I was going to say, you can't just plop down in one text and go, I understand exactly what that means. But really, if you think about it, the reason that you understand this so easily, and a lot of people do, is because they have a larger understanding of the whole flow of the Bible. They understand that Jesus... Because what happens if you said to a person who had never heard about the Bible, you just quoted to them John 3.16. What does it mean by everlasting life? What does it mean that we won't perish? Does that mean I'm going to have a life that goes on forever? That I'm, I'm not going to actually have to experience the grave? Is that what that means? So there's all sorts of things that are embedded into our understanding. Why? Because we understand the larger context. So if we're going to understand something, we need to understand it in terms of its original language and in terms of its larger logical units. All communication is propositional. That is, all communication is constructed in sentences, in orderly ideas that take words, put them together in phrases like we talked about, and then those phrases come together in a sentence. We understand those sentences in terms of paragraphs and chapters and books and so on. So, a text has only one meaning. That's our third principle. So, he Notice your, um, the little paragraph there in the middle of page 3. Because the Bible is composed of human elements, it is to be interpreted as normal human communications. Uh, communication. These principles are true for all human language. Not just the Bible, but the Bible differs from other human communication. In, a different, in addition to having multiple human authors, ultimately the Bible was composed by a single author, God. And because there is a single author... There is unity among all the books of the Bible. This means that the Bible will never contradict itself, even though one author may be coming from a different time period and culture than another author, right? The fact is, they all have really one author because the Bible is inspired. So it's unique in that way. It's not like a collection. You know, if we decided we were going to put put together uh, um, some kind of um, teaching book, uh, if we put it all together, we might have all different nuances of what we believed and, and so on. Or you just, you know, pick some people in the neighborhood, put them all together and put a book together. Well, there's not going to be one common theme in all those writings. But in the Bible, there is because we have one single author. Do you see? So, two roles to understand in light of the Bible's single author. Number one. Interpret difficult passages in light of clear passages. Interpret difficult passages in light of clear passages. So, let's see if I can find find an example here. Uh, 
Let's turn to Hebrews chapter 6. Let me see if I can give you an example quickly. Because we have to admit that there are some passages that we just come across and we look at them on their own and in the light of their, their the paragraph that we're reading it and we just think, that, what what is that? What does that mean? And here's one of them. Um, for us who believe in eternal security, that, that a person, once he is saved, he is always saved, this is a difficult passage. Hebrews 6, verse 4, For in the case of those who have once been enlightened and have tasted of the heavenly gift and have been made partakers of the Holy Spirit and have tasted the good word of God and the powers of the age to come and then have fallen away, it is impossible to renew them again to repentance. Since they again crucify to themselves the Son of God and put Him to open shame. And then he goes on and gives an illustration there in verses 7 and 8. What does it say? Okay. Yeah. Um, yeah, let's try to. Um, what's that? What's it say in verse four? Okay, so that's where the impossible comes. I think the. Yeah. I think people who um, people who use the King James and the people who use the Nasby would agree that this is a difficult passage. That it sounds like a person can lose his salvation. So here, here's the difficult part for us. How do we interpret a difficult passage when it sounds like that a person can lose his salvation? Well, the Bible is never contradictory. It's only apparently contradictory. That is, we don't see the, the correlations. Um, there's, actually, there's no real contradictions in the Scripture. So how do we interpret a difficult passage like this? Well, we go to the passages that we know are true and clear. right? Not that this, this uh, passage is untrue. It's just it's more difficult to understand. Paul's, or not Paul, the, possibly Paul, but the author of Hebrews is saying he's giving a warning to believers that, listen, you need to be sure about your perseverance. You need to continue all the way till the end because those who don't continue to the end don't have salvation. So how do we interpret that in light of um, a clearer passage? Do we know any clear passages on eternal security? Anybody think of any? How do we know that we are saved eternally? Yes. John 10, verses 27 through 29, where Jesus says, no man can take them from my Father's hand, um, that, that my Father who gave them to me is greater than all, and no one can pluck them from my Father's hand. That these are my sheep, and my sheep know my voice, and I know them, and they follow me, and they will never perish. So there's no salvation, ooh, catastrophic sin, loss of salvation, all right, re-salvation, and you know, the only way we can know that we're going to actually make it to the end is that we we got saved <laughs> before we died, you know, type thing. Now there are even Baptists 
That's what the free will Baptists believe, as far as I understand, that believe that. That they'll take a passage like this, a difficult one like Hebrews 6, and say, well, it must be saying that, um, that a person can fall away. That a person can lose their salvation. That's how they would interpret it. But we need to interpret it in ter- terms of larger text. God would not contradict himself. And God has made it clear in other passages, including John 10 and others, that no one can lose their salvation. So we know what it cannot mean. So let's use the clear passages to help inform the more difficult passages. All right, second rule to understand in light of the Bible's single author is that we should interpret every book of the Bible in light of its overall biblical context. All right, this is what we already talked about. So every book in terms of the overall biblical context. So every single thing has a larger unit in which it's written. So take even a book and and interpret in, in light of the entire Bible. And so um, that refers to both content and time. So we need to fit, for example, we need to fit the narrative of Ezra and Nehemiah into the larger narrative of the Old Testament. What's going on in the Old Testament? You know, that Israel has turned away from God. God's trying to rescue them. They've been sent off into captivity. Now they've been brought back in order to help build back up the walls so that God can dwell among them again. So we see that. We don't see all that right in the text in Ezra and Nehemiah, but we see it in a larger context, and that's what we ought to be seeing. All right, final principle here today. Excuse me. The Bible, the, the Bible communicates a unified message. This always tears me up. Just kidding. Um, the Bible communicates a unified, a unified message. So we can't just take passages out of context. We can't take Philippians 4:13 and make it whatever we want to mean. It needs to be understood in larger, in light of its larger logical units. The Bible has one unified, one voice, one unified message. So we have to take the difficult passages. Again, like the example I used last week of James 2. Faith without works is dead. Not talking about gaining salvation. So let's go to a clear passage and see what, how a person is justified. How does a person get saved? Well, it's not by works. So that must not be what James is saying. What is James saying? Well, he's saying that a person who has been saved actually evidences that salvation in his works. And it doesn't make sense for a Christian to live without works. That's what he was made for. So again... Interpret them in light of its larger unit. It's important to take time to work through this somewhat weighty material because the danger for us is to become dependent on a traditional interpretation that we've heard, right? Even Paul said, you know, um, if someone comes to you with another gospel other than the one that you had handed down to you by the apostles that let that person be accursed, even if it's me, he says. So here's the danger. We can take traditional interpretations from even our own pastor or from scholars that we love, and we can depend more on that truth rather than what's actually in the text. And there, don't get me wrong, we don't want to dismiss all that. Um, there is much value in 
in um, learning from those people who have gone before us who, ha- who have been or are being indwelt by the Holy Spirit and who have the scales removed from their eyes and are able to see the text for what it is. But we have to be careful not to transfer the authority of uh, from the Bible to the interpreters. Like, I know I believe that because this person says it. And that's the danger. So we, that, we want to be good studiers ourselves. That's, ourselves. that's why Acts 17.11 is so helpful, right? That the Bereans searched the Scriptures daily to see if what Paul was saying was true. They were commended for that, weren't they? And we ought to be able to have some of just the very basics to be able to do that. I mean, who is going to check what I say? Right? If, if you are just wholesale believing everything, every word that comes from my mouth. Right? That, that's why I, why I say there's some danger in that. Um, because people are flawed. And again, we can be flawed too in our own interpretation. But if we just wholesale believe in everything someone, someone says that's not Scripture, then we've actually shifted our confidence and our authority into the person or to the interpretation of the scholar rather than onto the scripture. So we have tools of interpretation that we can use to help avoid reinforce, reinforcing errors and actually help develop convictions about what is true and what is right. And if the Bible is going to transform us, if it's going to do a continual work of reformation in us, then we must be careful to listen by using the best resources that we have. And you know, praise God that he does give scholars and pastors to help us to understand these things, but but we need to um, respectfully uh, try to think of the right way to put this. But we, we need to question them not in a cynical way, um, that but but rather question them um, like the Brians did with Paul, right? See if what he said was true, because the ultimate authority is in the scriptures. All right, any questions or comments, Bill? Yeah. Oh, are you talking about in Hebrews? Okay. Yeah. time to work through some more of these things and and answer any questions that you have. Next week we'll continue some of the basics of interpretation. We'll try to just do an overview before we get into the the details here in the last six weeks. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you that it's simple enough for a child to be able to understand at least on a surface level the basics of it, but also deep enough for us to explore for the rest of our lives and for all of eternity and um, to find out more of your character and more of what you expect of us. Help us as we do that in Jesus.